You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Kristen Bird on the show with me. She has an amazing new novel. It's called The Night She Went Missing. And I know it's only February, uh, but this is one of my favorite books that I've read so far this year, and uh, it will be at the top of your favorite books of 2022, I guarantee it. Run out and grab the book now. It's been available for a couple of days when you're hearing this, and uh, we're going to talk all about it today. Welcome to the show, Kristen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have you. Uh, Kristen, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? I actually remember being in third or fourth grade, and I lived in a small town in North Alabama called Albertville. That's where all of my extended family is from. And the local printing press had a contest at the elementary school to see which team of students could write the best children's book. So my team wrote a Stuart Little style book about an adventurous mouse who went on all of these escapades around the house. And our team got chosen as the winner. So they actually turned it into a picture book and we had to color the pictures and everything. And I just remember feeling really honored to be part of that team that was chosen. And I already loved uh, writing and reading at that point, but I think that sparked something in me that I really wanted to have a book that was bound that could be in people's hands someday. I love that. And what grade did you say you were in? That was in third or fourth grade. I'm not sure. I actually called my mom this morning to ask. (laughs) She couldn't remember either. (laughs) So around 10 or 11 years old? Yeah. What what a what a impressionable age uh, that is, you know, when um, what a great opportunity to have at that age, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, you know, that Mm -hmm. um, for, uh, you know, when when things are really first connecting, uh, you know, and you're learning who you are and to have an experience like that had to benefit you uh, going down the road. Do do you look back on that now and, and can you trace uh, you know, your your trajectory where you are now back to that time of, of knowing that, you know, um, people do like what I do and I, I can I can do this. It's, it's achievable. Yes, actually, after that point, I remember I would corral my little sister who was six years younger than me and I would make her put together books with me. <laughs> so um, she would be, you know, my little assistant editor. <laughs> love that that's so fun um you mentioned uh, north alabama and um you know i'm i'm from the state right next door mississippi and you know we we have a rich history in in the south uh especially of uh, of storytellers and of storytelling um you know i love to ask people you know how a sense of place affects them as a writer can you 
uh, trace your Alabama roots to um, uh, to, to anything in, in storytelling? Do, do you think that that there's a uh, any particular experience that that feeds the storytelling? Yes, and I actually think that's where I get uh, some of that darkness in my storytelling. Actually, <laughs> um, <clears throat> my family is from Georgia and Alabama, um, but Alabama, you know, in the past fifty to seventy-five years, so they've been there a long time. And the kinds of stories they would tell were always just laced with, you know, just the side of dark <laughs> or sometimes even the humor would be dark. You know, um, I remember my sitting with my grandmother and she was a twin. So she would sit there with her identical twin sister and the two of them would just talk back and forth about their burial plots and what they wanted for their funerals and this other person who'd been buried. And <laughs> I I just grew up with a lot of like already thinking about what was to come. <laughs> that, that's so funny because uh, it, it seems like especially the generation before us um, really thought a lot about that. I remember having conversations with my father-in-law before he passed and about, you know, specific songs that he wanted at his funeral mm -hmm. and things like that. And, and I remember thinking, you're not going to be there. You know, it's, it's you know, <laughs> right. You know, yep. so much attention and to detail, you know, went into these things. And um, there's something about finding the humor and darkness or, or you know, yes. seeing darkness in humor. The, those are, are two interesting bedfellows. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, my uh, mother was actually a hospice nurse when I was growing up. And so she traveled around to the rural parts of Alabama and treated people, um, you know, back in the hills and the valleys in North Alabama. And, you know, when we got our pets, our pets came from one of her patients and, you know, we would sit around the dinner table and share our day and she would share about her experiences. So I was just very um, familiar and almost comfortable with like the darker side of life. I feel like from that experience, but not in a frightening way. I think it was actually uh, formative in a positive way. It made me less scared. I think of that darkness. So that's, yeah, I, I can totally see that. Um, Kristen, you, your day job now is a, a school teacher, uh, you know, from that formative experience that you told us about to now teaching school. Um, what, what, uh, what brought you to education? I was living in Galveston and I actually thought that I wanted to be a college professor. So I went back to get my master's and I was planning to pursue my Ph.D. But while I was working on my master's degree, I began teaching part time at the local high school in Galveston. I was teaching photography and journalism and I just really fell in love with that age group. They to me are some of the funniest people <laughs> that I meet. Our high schoolers. Um, and so I actually decided not to go get my PhD and just keep teaching high school because I loved it so much. So I teach this year 9th, 11th, and 12th grade English. So I have quite a spread of students. That's awesome. Things We Never Got Over, the new book by best-selling author Lucy Score. Bearded bad boy Barber Knox refers to live his life the way he takes his coffee, alone unless you count his Basset Hound Waylon. Knox doesn't tolerate drama even when it comes in the form of a stranded runaway bride. Naomi wasn't just running away from her wedding. 
She was riding to the rescue of her estranged twin to knock him out Virginia, a rough around the edges town where disputes are settled the old-fashioned way, with fist and beer, usually in that order. Too bad for Naomi, her evil twin hasn't changed at all. After helping herself to Naomi's car and cash, Tina leaves her with something unexpected. The niece Naomi didn't know she had. Now she's stuck in town with no car, no job, no plan, and no home, with an 11-year-old going on 30 to take care of. There's a reason Knox doesn't do complications or high-maintenance women, especially not the romantic ones. But since Naomi's life imploded right in front of him, the least he can do is help her out of her jam. And just as soon as she stops getting into new trouble, he can leave her alone and get back to his peaceful, solitary life. At least that's the plan until the trouble turns to real danger. Things We Never Got Over, the new book by best-selling author Lucy Score. An Innocent Client, the first book in the Joe Dillard legal thriller series. A preacher is found brutally murdered in a Tennessee motel room. A beautiful, mysterious young girl is accused. In this best-selling debut, criminal defense lawyer Joe Dillard has become jaded over the years as he's tried to balance his career against his conscience. Savvy but cynical, Dillard wants to quit doing criminal defense, but he can't resist the chance to represent someone who might actually be innocent. His drug-addicted sister has just been released from prison and his mother is succumbing to Alzheimer's, but Dillard's commitment to the case never wavers despite the personal troubles and professional demands that threaten to destroy him. Chosen by BookBub readers as one of the top 100 crime novels of all time, get started on this great series with an innocent client where it all started. Read for free with Kindle Unlimited or buy it in paperback or audiobook. An Innocent Client by Scott Pratt. Dabble is a proud sponsor of Author Stories. Dabble is an easy-to-use cloud-based writing tool that gives writers a way to organize, plot, and create amazing stories wherever they are. Write in our desktop app, on your Mac or Windows computer, tablet, or mobile device. Dabble syncs your latest version with the cloud on all your devices. Write anywhere and anytime inspiration strikes. We got you. Dabble is my preferred writing tool, and I think it will be yours as well. Visit DabbleWriter.com for your free trial. That's awesome. Um, you know... Um, a lot of us have experiences when we're younger where we we know that we uh, are storytellers and that we will write a book and publish it one day um and and then you know life gets in the way and and we we start raising families and we get jobs and start having to pay bills and all of that but that writing bug always has a way of coming back around and we know that it did for you because we're here talking about your new book today what was it that brought you back around and uh gave you uh you know the desire to to get the story out yes that's a great question I actually wrote my first full-length novel as part of my master's program. It was my creative writing thesis. And that experience was really positive because I had some hand-holding along the way with professors and their critiques and their advice. Um, and then I graduated, and like you said, life got in the way. <laughs> I started working full-time. 
Um, I had my oldest daughter, who's now 11 years old. And then I had twins two years and some months later. (laughs) So all of a sudden I was consumed with the mom thing, you know, and the full-time job. So I actually started writing as just kind of an outlet for my own creativity a few months after my twins were born. And I would just write for maybe an hour on Saturday, you know, go get a cup of coffee, escape my crazy household for a little while and just sit and write. And it was very therapeutic for myself just to have something that was like entirely mine. And that then took me to writing a novel over about four years or so, maybe even a little bit longer, because it was such a period of starts and stops. And that one I did query pretty widely, and no one took it on. So at one point, you know, I had the thought of, oh, maybe I should just quit. Maybe I should just give up on this. And that lasted about a week. And then I decided I am a writer and I just have to write. <laughs> And I thought, well, if no one else ever reads it, then at least it's good for my own mental health. <laughs> so sure, I'm just sure. going to keep writing. So yeah. that's when I decided to start writing this contemporary novel, The Night She Went Missing. What happened to that um, that thesis project, the, the novel that came out of that? <laughs> it is sitting in my uh, hard drive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I don't know if anyone will ever see it, so... <laughs> It was definitely a learning experience, though. Yeah, um, that that is fascinating to me because I, I hear um, stories from from different writers, and and uh, in one hand, you've got people that that have written multiple novels, and then you know get to the point where they've written a novel that uh, that is. Um, you know, accepted by the market and is published. And, and some people write a first novel and just keep going back to that and revising and revising and revising until, you know, it becomes publishable and then they sell it. And, and that is their debut novel. Um, do you, do you have, can you weigh in on that at all about the, the difference in um, what that feeling is that uh, you know, in starting a new project and, and being able to let that past project go versus, um, you know, being so um, ingrained in that early project that you have to keep getting it ready. Do you feel any anything one way or another about those two um, kind of polar opposites? Right. So I'll take uh, I'll talk about my second novel, actually, the one that took me about four or five years to write that didn't get published. I felt like I was still learning a lot about the craft of writing, and I thought, well, I'm going to give this the best chance I can. I'm going to make it as good as I can personally get it without, you know, paying someone bukus of money to help me fix it, Um, since I didn't have the professors and that kind of thing guiding me. And the only reason I was really able to let it go was because I queried it to about a hundred people and I had a handful of people who wanted full, uh, who made full requests, a handful of agents. But for me, I knew that publishing was something that I wanted to be as at least like a part-time career for me. And I thought, well, if I get to a hundred and it hasn't happened, then maybe it's time for me to try something else. The other thing that helped is that second project was actually 
a dual point of view and the one point of view was contemporary and then one point of view was set in the 1910s. And so I found that the contemporary voice came a lot more naturally to me. And I realized that I was really struggling with that historical fiction voice. And I love to read historical fiction. So I really admire authors in that genre. Um, But I thought, well, if this is the voice that's really working for me, maybe I should try an entire novel in this contemporary voice. And so that's why I decided to go ahead and just switch genres altogether and try something different. It just felt more natural and fitting to where I'm at right now as a writer. How long have you been a fan of the thriller or suspense genre? Probably since I started reading Leanne Moriarty in mm, probably the early 2010s, um, early to mid 2010s. I love all of her novels. And I know that some of her earlier ones were more the women's fiction, somewhat romance, but I still feel like all of them had that kind of darker side and and a sense of humor that was just really like spot on and maybe a little biting at times. Uh, So I think that she is the one really who pulled me into this genre. And I actually took one of her novels, I believe it was Big Little Lies, and I used it as a sort of mentor text, like I tell my students to do. And I mapped out what she did in each chapter, just quick outlining for myself so that I could see how it worked. I kind of dissected it <laughs> as a kind of study project for myself. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Um, the the new book is uh, is set in Houston, or, excuse me, in Galveston, um, mm-hmm. and but you live outside of Houston, right? Um, mm-hmm. When you mentioned earlier that uh, that you lived uh, in Galveston when when you're in college, and and that kind of partially answered a question for me. Um, but why did you choose to set it? in Galveston, uh, even though you live, um, you know, in the same state, a little ways away in Houston. What was it about the setting that really appealed to you? I think it was that Galveston surprised me. It felt like, uh, unlike any other place I had lived and growing up, my family moved around a lot. So hometown was always Albertville, Alabama, but we lived in Virginia, Alabama, California, Oregon, and then finally came to Texas when I was in high school and when my husband and I went to, to Galveston, we were probably 24, 25, but I was working on my master's degree there. And we started realizing that all of the expectations we'd brought to this place that we were living, you know, that it would be a tourist town and then it would be beachy, that those were true, but there was also something else happening there. So there was very much an artistic vibe. Um, there was a lot of history that we kind of knew about in the periphery, but we hadn't realized how much that had influenced the island. I mean, the 1900 storm happened there, and uh, 6,000 people plus you know, lost their lives in that storm. And it really changed the trajectory of the island. Before the 1900 storm, it was known as a city that could rival Paris or New York. And after the 1900 storm, a lot of people moved off the island and a lot of the wealth left. And so it became a place that had a lot more poverty than I actually realized just as a tourist. So, you know, the downtown area of Galveston is called the Strand. And we would go down there and hang out and get a bite to eat, whatever. 
Well, I started realizing that about two blocks from there, there was a lot of poverty, a lot of drug use, a lot of uh, a lot of just people who were hurting. And I actually ended up volunteering a time or two at, at a place that helped people like that. And so I guess it was the juxtaposition of that, you know, we're here to have fun and be tourists with the reality of the poverty that was there that was really intriguing to me. And then, of course, the other thing is that it's on an island, so there's very few ways to escape. (laughs) And that always intrigued me and just kind of left me with this feeling of like, oh, this could be a place that you would have to get off of in in time. You know, like when Hurricane Harvey happened, people got stuck on the causeway because they didn't leave in time. So um, that just always interested me as well. I actually had a friend who worked in the virology department at UTMB, and she told me one time, because she had level three clearance, and level four was like the highest level, and it was for Ebola. And she said, I've got level three clearance, and the reason that they put the virology lab on the island is so that if anything gets out, they can close off all the exits to the island. Oh, no. <laughs> and I cannot <laughs> confirm that. I don't know if that's oh, true at all. Man. But that idea. I'm not going to be able to sleep at night now. (laughs) (laughs) You might not want to go there. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Oh, mercy. Um, Kristen, one of my favorite things to ask people is uh, is, is this question about where stories begin. Because in in one moment, uh, the night she went missing did not exist in any form, fashion, or uh, it just didn't exist. And then either a character walked onto the stage of your mind or you started, you know, playing the what if game based on maybe something you read or a news story you saw or, or whatever, you know, that the catalyst was. And then um, in in some form or fashion, the night she went missing did exist. And then it was your job as the writer to dig that story out and excavate it and dust it off and, you know, do all the things that writers do to bring it out to the world. What was that first moment of inspiration uh, for the night she went missing? So I was teaching journalism in 2018, I believe it was. I usually teach English, but I'd stepped in for one year to teach that class at the school I'm at now. And we read a feature article from The New Yorker by Rachel Aviv, and it was called How a Young Woman Lost Her Identity. And we read it as a mentor text, you know, to see how we could uh, mimic some of the great writing that she had done in our own writing. And it was the story of Hannah Up. And she's a young woman who actually went missing three times. And the first time she went missing, she was found floating near the Statue of Liberty, New York. And No one knew where she had been, and she couldn't remember what had happened to her over the previous weeks. Um, Since then, she actually has not been seen since September 2017, and uh, I believe she was in the Virgin Islands at the time. But she had a condition, uh, dissociative amnesia, and that just got my mind spinning with all of the things that could happen during a time when someone couldn't remember where they had been or what they'd been doing, um, how people might take advantage of that or help them uh, through something like that. And so 
that's when my mind began to turn with all of the what ifs. So I believe I started writing it at the end of 2019. So you said earlier that um, one of the things that you loved about teaching was this uh, this age group of kids and, and that you just loved being around them. Um, Emily, the you know, one of the main characters in the book is is that kind of character. She's a, she's a teenager. Um, was did you initially feel a kinship with her that that this was a voice that you could um, really get in touch with? Yes, she is the first voice that I wrote, and hers felt the most natural to me. I feel like in some ways she is a younger version of myself in the way that she thinks about the world and processes the world around her. But I feel like I'm able to tap into that because I'm with my students and I hear them speaking and I hear how they're thinking uh, and I read it in their essays. Um, I really enjoy reading their personal essays about the things that they've been through that have been impactful to them or meaningful in some way. This book is a um, is a, a suspense thriller, uh, but really fueled by uh, by a mystery. Um, when effectively um, telling a, a mystery story, uh, there are certain ways that you need to to get information across to the reader a little at a time where um, the reader is figuring out what's going on along with you. Um, so that you're not just feeding them information, but they're not second guessing and getting ahead of the writer, um, so to speak. There, there's a, a an interesting balance that that needs to happen between um, what you do tell them and then you know what clues you give them. Um, what how does your writing style support this this type of writing? Are you a, a pantser or a plotter? Do you think? much about the storyline ahead of time before you start the writing or are, are you kind of figuring it out as you go? Definitely figuring out it out as I go. <laughs> I'm a pantser. I do start giving myself a rough outline about halfway through the novel. I also go back and do heavy revisions. I mean, I, I often say that my first drafts are pretty much unreadable. I don't let anyone look at them because I don't think they make much sense. So I will probably revise something a dozen, 15 times before I ever show it to an editor. So there's a lot of going back and combing through and taking out and putting in. And that's really my process for figuring out which kind of crumbs to drop. And then my editor and my agent have, were both so great at helping me with the pacing of that. I feel like that was my biggest learning curve with this novel uh, because it was the first suspense novel I'd written and I really needed to refine the the pace of a suspense and how to keep reminding someone what the overarching goal was to find out what had happened to Emily, where she's been, what happened the night she went missing. So we know that this this family moves to Galveston from the Pacific Northwest uh because of something else that happens um when did when did when did that little nugget of of story information come to you and and uh, you know when did you realize that this was this needed to be a family that that was already dealing with something that that then allowed this other thing to happen i'm I'm trying to kind of speak and uh without Mm -hmm. giving too much away you know I, i want you to to say what what you're comfortable with telling about the story 
Right. So, like I said, my family actually moved here from Portland, Oregon. So I felt like I knew that area well enough that I could speak to what it was like to live there a little bit uh, in the backstory parts. And the mother of Emily, yes, has had a huge career crisis and basically had to leave her career because of something that happened. And I actually made her a music professor because my undergrad was in music and journalism. I have a very eclectic degree collection, (laughs) (laughs) very interdisciplinary. So I felt like I also was able to kind of tap into that music world a little bit. I'm sure if my music professors read it, they would be like, no, you didn't do it right. (laughs) But I I tried. Um, And so that's how I, you know, decided what her career path would be. I wanted to create conflict already with them moving there because I think that that's how real life is a lot of times. Things are very rarely cut and dry and simple um, whenever, especially when we make a big move. So you're either carrying something from your past or you've got hopes for the future that may or may not be realized. And so I wanted all of that kind of swirling around this family before I put them in a situation that was even more harrowing. (laughs) It's kind of a warm up. for them. (laughs) The the book um, offers a a few different perspectives, um, the viewpoints um, as we go along. Um, What did this offer you as the writer um, to kind of switch up the viewpoint and, and to let the 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 reader see other things that were going on. Um, kind of talk through the the decision to include those. So I will make a little confession here, a writing confession. At one point, this book had nine or ten viewpoints, <laughs> so really over the top. Um, and my agent is the one who was like, "Let's narrow this down a little bit." So now we have uh, three mothers on the island, and then we also have Emily, the missing girl who comes in and out of the narrative. And I wanted this novel really at the heart of it to be about mothers and the links that they will go to to protect their children or to defend their children, to keep their children from harm. And so I wanted each of those three women to have their own kind of time center stage to show why they would go to such lengths to protect a child that maybe might not even always be someone you should protect. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because, you know, a couple of the mothers are the ones who are trying to clear their children's names from any involvement in what's happened. Gotcha. Um, Kristen, the, this is your debut book, right? Yes. Um, you know, now that this book is kind of off your desk and um, and you know is is it just hit the the store shelves a couple of days ago, and you know there's kind of the initial flurry of of promotion and 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 things like that. But uh, you know, soon that that all kind of wanes, and and you know, uh, the reality for a writer is when that book is out, you're staring at the blank page all over again. Um, do you, do you have any idea what the next project is? Are you working on anything yet? Yes, actually I signed a two book deal with Mira. And so my next novel comes out March, 2023. And I'm in the middle of editing that right now. And that one actually is set in a fictitious version of the town. I grew up in North Alabama. 
And so it's really fun to kind of return to that area and think of a suspense story that could kind of, you know, encompass my family there. Yeah. I love it. I can't wait to see what what's uh, going to come from that. The Night She Went Missing is available everywhere now. When you're hearing this, uh, there's going to be links to it in the show notes where you can go grab it in Kindle edition or if you want to hold the paper in your hands and do it that way. Um, Kristen, is there going to be an audiobook uh, edition of this? Yes, there will be. Have you have you heard any uh, any of the uh, the production of it yet? I haven't yet. I'm so excited to hear it. <laughs> I know that that's going to be fantastic. I bet I can't wait until it drops. But um, if uh, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff you're doing, is there a place online where they can connect with you, Kristen? Sure. I have a website. It's kristenbird.com. Bird like the birds that fly outside. And uh, my Instagram is at kristenbirdwrites. Great. We'll link those up to make it easier for folks to find you. The Night She Went Missing, available everywhere now. Go grab it today or use the links in the show notes to uh, grab it from Amazon. Kristen, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you for taking time to come on the show. Thank you so much. It's been a delight. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Gleaves, the Jason Crane series. Mather steepled his hands. You asked to join us once? Hedwick leaned forward eagerly. The appointed. Does that appeal? Yes. Do you even know what we do? My grandmother used to say that you control the world. That's not far off. But why? To what end? I don't know. Power? Pour me a bourbon. Mather reached into his briefcase and produced a file folder. I want to tell you one story. Have you ever heard of Centralia, Pennsylvania? No. He produced a photo for Hedwig's inspection. Spring of 1962. A pretty little town, wasn't it? Whitewash and ticky-tacky, pastel housewives and perfect lawns. A mining community, mostly. Coal. He turned over a second photo. A lovely young woman. There was a single witch in Centralia named Anna Lively. Anna had a green thumb. She could make her garden grow, whisper to a flower, and send it shooting from the ground like that. Just lovely. But she was discovered. That spring, a boy named Bobby Avery received a Bell and Howell Zoomatic movie camera for his 11th birthday. Bobby amused himself by filming his neighbors, sometimes without their knowledge, through windows and over garden fences. Twelve seconds of film. Just a girl and her garden patch and one swiftly blooming rose. It killed the town. Bobby showed it to his friends. Children believe readily. Bobby was the first to die. Parents looked into it, watched the film themselves, and they began to die. Anna disappeared. Perhaps they attacked her. Perhaps she escaped. But even in her absence, knowledge of a true witch was running wild through the population, as if Anna had beckoned it herself to grow verdant and spread. The great curse had killed 64 Centralians by the 1st of June. The footage was offered to a national news organization. That was the precipice. It might have been shown in prime time, 
between Leave It to Beaver and My Three Sons. We came very close to another worldwide calamity, but we were fortunate. One of our own was in place at the network. He alerted his superiors, and they ended the situation. Do you know how? I'm afraid to ask. Mather laid down another photo. This is Centralia today. It was an aerial view of a forest. Endless trees and underbrush cut through by lanes of pavement. Just a maze of cracking asphalt, like the foundations of Sodom, ripped bare by the wrath of God. Only a cemetery remained, on a hill overlooking the former town. A white marble angel stood among the graves, grieving for the ruins below, like Lot's wife, turned to salt. You destroyed the whole town? Not I. This was well before my time. But, yes. Just as you'd cauterize a wound to stop a patient from bleeding to death. We blamed it on an uncontrollable mine fire deep below the earth. We actually set the coal burning in case someone investigated. It burns today. Touch any of those streets and you'll find them hot, the asphalt melting as if the town sat just above perdition. It's not something we're proud of, but it was necessary. To save the world, Centralia, Pennsylvania, and everyone who'd seen that film had to be sacrificed. Mather collected the photos. So, that is why the appointed exist, and that is what we do. Still want to join?